Morning, everybody. Got your Bibles there. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. This week, we get to the burning bush uh, story with Moses at the burning bush. So we'll just read through it. This is an awesome chapter. It's got that verse 14. It says, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And so we get the name of God here, his, his character. So a lot to get into today. So I'll just pray and we'll, we'll read through. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you for what you show us about yourself in this chapter. And Lord, as Moses um, benefited, I pray that we can as well. And we can learn more about who you are and how much we can trust you and, and what you can do for us. And, um, and the fact that we don't need anything else but you. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to read through the entire chapter. It says, uh, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, 
the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Basically, this is God's game plan, you know, strategy event. All right, this is what we're going to do, and he's um, telling Moses what's going to happen. He's giving the big picture, but he hasn't given him all the details. There's things that we're not going to read about today, which are coming, he doesn't tell Moses, oh, by the way, when Pharaoh says no, he's going to make life really hard for the Israelites. He's going to take away the straw and they're going to want to stone you. He didn't, he didn't tell Moses that bit. <laughs> so he's given him the, the picture, the vision. He's reaffirmed that Moses is going to be the agent that he's going to use to deliver the people. But he doesn't tell him everything. So when God gives us a vision, a purpose for something, guess what? There might be little details in there that might make us think, is this really what God said to do? But yes, it is. So let's start at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert. (laughs) The back of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. So it seems that God often plants his people in the desert before he uses them. Elijah was a man of the desert. John the Baptist grew up in the desert regions of the Dead Sea in southern Israel. Paul spent three years following his conversion in the deserts of Arabia. And John the Revelator was banished to the desert island of Patmos. And I've gone through desert times in my life where I've, been, I've wondered, Lord, where are you? You know, What are you doing? I don't feel your presence. But, you know, as the years go by we come to the place where we understand that we can't depend on our feelings and our emotions. We need to walk by faith, not by sight. And the desert seasons, or those wilderness experiences, are essential for us to come to a place where we can say, Lord, you promised you would be with me. You promised you would never leave me, no matter how dry the times might be, or how solitary the setting might seem. The fact of the matter is your word has been given and you're teaching me to stand upon it rather than sinking in my own emotions. So we don't just follow God when things are going well. We follow God no matter how we feel. So over the years, and this is a quote from a pastor, 
Over the years, I have seen lots of talented people in all sorts of ministries fall away because their emotions, rather than the word, dictated their walk. Emotions go up and down. Emotions are fickle. Emotions are affected by how our job is going, how our family is doing, how much pizza we had the previous evening, and by what people might think about us. But because God wants us to be stable and solid, to walk by faith and not by feelings or by sight, he will put us into a desert place where we, like Moses, must learn to be content and say, Lord, you give me the promise of your word and that's all I need. Now, I've got a couple of um, short testimonies here of, of people who have gone through some pretty serious trials. Not like, um, you know, get, almost getting their head chopped off, but emotional trials. The first one is from Ray Comfort and the next one is from Oswald Chambers. So let me share something very personal. This is uh, Ray Comfort quoting from him. I had just finished preaching in a small country church when a lean-looking young man approached me and said, I wish I was like you. I managed to smile, but held on to the words that came to mind. You don't know what you are saying. Little did he know that at that moment I was going through sheer terror. I had been praying earlier that day when suddenly it seemed that all hell was at loose in my mind. It was as though God had removed every hedge of protection from me and a thousand spirits of terror invaded my thoughts. I fell upon the floor. I wept. I cried out to God. I exercised myself to no avail. There is no way I can describe the experience of the following months other than to say that it was like being held over a black pit of insanity by a spider's web. When I arrived home from that series of meetings, Sue, his wife, asked him how they went. I said, the, the meetings were fine, then broke down. I felt so crushed within my mind that I was unable to have family devotions or even eat a meal at the table with my family for over 12 months. I diagnosed myself as having a wounded spirit. Before God could use me, I needed to have a broken spirit. And from the Amplified Bible, Isaiah 66 verse 2. But this is a man to whom I will look and have regard. He who is humble and of a broken or wounded spirit, and he trembles at my word and reveres my commands. It was A.W. Tozer who said, Before God uses a man, God will break the man. And if there is a cry in your heart to be used by God, then you may go through a similar experience. I don't want to unnecessarily alarm you, but if you understand what is happening and what you can do to speed up the process, it will help. If God in his great wisdom sees fit to use a refiner's fire, if he takes you through a fiery trial, then it's only if needs be. That's 1 Peter 1.6. Pray that you may avoid it, but this is often normal procedure in being prepared for the ministry. A wild horse is no good to a rider. It can't be trusted. It needs its spirit broken so that it will willingly yield to the desire of the rider. So, you know, people have today um, anxiety issues and, and things like that. Paul the Apostle, uh, one way of looking at um, his thorn in the flesh, he was a messenger of Satan was buffeting him. And we've got rational fear, like, you know, if you stand outside and there's lightning all around, you might be scared of being hit by lightning. That's a rational fear. There's something physically that might hurt you. But if you're scared and there's no reason to be scared, it's like a panic attack, that's that's kind of um, that what what Satan can or God can allow Satan to do to us, and um, 
According to estimates, 3 million people in the US have panic attacks. These are rap- characterized by rapid heartbeat, dizziness, shortness of breath, and fear of losing control, going crazy, or dying. The unsaved who experience panic attacks are often driven to drugs, alcohol, despair, or insanity. The Christian who suffers doesn't do so in vain, but there is a sense of guilt on top of the fear. The experience doesn't seem to match the Bible's description of a faith-filled Christian. He says, I will not fear, and yet he fears. His will is incapacitated. For those who have prayed and prayed and prayed for deliverance and still find themselves in such a predicament, there are strong consolations. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to fear. He said, For indeed, and this is from Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. And Paul prayed for deliverance, and God said no. We can give place to the devil through sin, but um, we're not talking about that. We're talking about if we're not in sin, and that we're still suffering from, um, if we can call it demonic oppression, okay? Or, or we're going through some kind of fiery trial, it doesn't matter what it is. If we haven't given place to the devil, what is he doing in our lives? There must be good reason for him to be there. The only reasonable conclusion is that God has given permission. This happened in the book of Job. God allowed Satan to buffet Job so that he would grow in his faith in God. As I have said before, God has given us the book of Job for admonition and instruction. Think about Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Who was tempting him? Satan. He is being buffeted by Satan. Tempted by Satan. So, it is God. This is from the Amplified Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It is God who is all the while effectively at work in you, energizing and creating in you the power and desire, both to will and to work for his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. So, we have established that God is at work in you. You have this fiery trial, this um, demonic buffeting from which God will not presently deliver you because he is doing a good work in you therefore what should your attitude to this good work he is doing be it should be one of joy because your joy is evidence of how much you trust god if you trust him then you will rejoice for his goodness and that joy will be strength to you and then oswald chambers sometimes when we go through trials, we think, oh, you know, someone else, they've got the joy of the Lord and then they're really happy and I'm not feeling very happy at the moment. My, my, my emotions are quite down, okay? And we can feel condemnation because we're not feeling as good as that other person. But you know what? And there's the word in Hebrews 12.11, we go through the trials, but afterward there is the fruit of righteousness. So if you want to write down the word afterward, you know that this trial has an end, this trial will finish, and there is um, deliverance at the end. So guard against condemnation. You are no less spiritual than those who seem to have complete victory. If you don't believe it, think of the experience of Oswald Chambers, author of the mega best-selling devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Now there's a man whose life and words have been an inspiration to millions. He was spiritual in the truest sense of the word. However, 
the great author, had four years in his life of which he said, God used me during those four years for the conversion of souls, but I had no conscious communion with him. The Bible was the dullest, most uninteresting book in existence. And that's from Oswald Chambers' Abandoned to God. He described those four years as hell on earth. However, he found that there was an afterwards saying, But those of you who know the experience know very well how God brings one to the point of utter despair. And I got to the place where I did not care whether anyone or everyone knew how bad I was. I cared not for another on earth, saving to get out of my present condition. So, what's the the solution? Well, praise. We need to, in the trial, in the storm, we need to praise. And we can say a prayer like this. Father, I thank you that all things work together for my good, that it is you who are at work in me to will and to do of your good pleasure. Your strength is made perfect in my weakness. I will not let this attack discourage me because your grace is sufficient for me. You will help me through it. When I think of the sufferings of many, many others, I feel ashamed for having any self-pity. I will therefore rejoice in the God of my salvation and give you thanks in and for everything in Jesus' name. And the trials will make you stronger. So Moses has been through 40 years in the desert. 40 years on the backside of the of the desert chasing sheep. <laughs> or not chasing sheep. They didn't chase sheep back then. They led the sheep. The sheep came to them. But 40 years looking after a flock of sheep in the wilderness. So Moses... Once a respected man, well, once a most respected man, he's now the most rejected man. And he's logged 40 years of time in the desert. And what's happened? He's changed. God has done this massive work in his heart, and he's changed him. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire over the, from the midst of a bush, or from the middle of the bush. Now, this angel of the Lord, I believe, is Jesus Christ himself. And um, you, we get that, that it's God from what he actually tells us his name is. Now, this is God speaking to his servant Moses. Now, if you were God, what kind of tree would you use? A thorn bush? A, a, a you know, rubbishy old thorn bush, which has no good purpose except to burn? Or would you use like a big oak tree or a big, you know, pine tree or something like that? Something which is stately and is really beautiful and is an expression of power, strength. Well, God used a little prickly thorn bush. And that speaks to us that he can use us too. Because we're like prickly thorn bushes too sometimes, you know. So God can use anybody. And we're going to come back to that. So let's go on to the next part. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses says, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Here's a question for you. Would Moses have turned aside to study this situation, this interesting phenomenon of a bush burning and not being consumed, if he was in the city, if he was engaged in lots of activity, if he was in the palace of Pharaoh as he was 40 years previously? Do you reckon he'd be taking the time to look at a burning bush, a burning thorn bush? I don't think so. 
So one of the reasons I think that God puts us in these wilderness experiences is so we can better hear what God wants to say to us. So when things are humming, active and hectic, we miss lots of those still quiet voices that God has for us. But when we're in a desert place, a desert job, a desert marriage, rejoice. For it will give you opportunity to see the Lord in new ways, to sense the Lord in ways that if you were more active, more engaged and more fulfilled, you'd miss. It makes us turn to God for our strength. And when we turn to him, we're more open to hear what he wants to tell us. And verse 4, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. The question we can ask is, Why don't I hear from the Lord more? It could be because we're buzzing around too much with too much activity. I know that's true for me sometimes. It could be because things are going too smoothly. I've got no problems. I don't need to stop and have a quiet time. Everything's great. I'm happy. Emotions are fine. I feel good. It could be that the Lord wants us to log in some desert times quite regularly, times when things seem lonely and dry. It was only when Moses turned to see the burning bush that God called his name. So there's a burning bush around us. We all have a burning bush. This is like an analogy. And when the Lord sees that we're not an automatic pilot, when we're not running here, there and everywhere, but we're quieted ourselves and we're in a place where you're curious and and waiting to hear from him, he'll call your name. Then he said, verse 5, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. So you're in a special spot, Moses, God said. You're in my presence. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So here, um, someone has said, you can see the Trinity here. Abraham, God the Father, Isaac, God the Son, and Jacob, God the Spirit. Well, Jacob was governed by God, led by the Spirit. And this verse, and this um, phrase, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, is used in quite a few places, but Jesus quoted this when he's having an argument with the Sadducees. They were saying, oh, there's no resurrection. That's what the Sadducees believed. Well, that's why they were sad, you see. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine to 32 says, Jesus answered and said to them, because this is just after they'd been arguing with him about, oh, you know, this woman marries a man and he dies and he marries his brother and then he dies, he marries his brother. So who's he going to be married to in heaven? Because he's trying to trip him up. So Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, but he's dead now. I was the God of Jacob, but he's dead now too. He say, no, I still am the God of Abraham. I still am the God of Isaac. So that's a good proof for the resurrection from Jesus himself. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So in God's presence, Moses is acutely aware of his inadequacies, his fleshly tendencies, his unworthiness. 
So if you want to look these up, you can. It's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Moses is not alone in this feeling, and it's not an unhealthy feeling, actually. It's, it's, um, we need to see ourselves in the light of the Scripture, and we realize that um, we're not holy. We are unworthy. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That was Isaiah. That was his response to a vision of God. And then Peter. This is just after Jesus had said, you know, cast your net on the other side of the boat and the nets filled up with fish. When Simon Peter saw it in Luke chapter 5 verse 8, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So it's so important for us to have a reverential awe and respect toward God. He's so much greater and stronger than us, but more importantly, he's holy. He's so much more holy than us. And if you'd like to read with me, I'm going to read from Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 9. And I like these verses because it just emphasizes um, God's greatness, his awesomeness. Uh, Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 to 9. So Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 9 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, or split the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, Men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we all are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember our iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. So that's uh, a cry from the nation of Israel when they are in captivity. And uh, just humbling themselves before the Lord, realizing their sin, and um, realizing how great, how holy God is and how sinful they are. All right, verse 7, back in Exodus, chapter 3. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. 
Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So, here is the Lord saying to Moses, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. Now, how do you think the people in Egypt felt? Put yourself in their shoes for a bit. You think they felt deserted, left alone, oppressed? Where's God in all this? But that's not the truth. We often feel we're all alone in our suffering. We think that nobody really sees, nobody is listening, nobody really knows, and nobody really cares. But God sees, God hears, God cares, and God knows. So when we counsel others, this is often the greatest need the person has for someone to demonstrate empathy, compassion, and concern. So we are the hands and feet of God. Moses was God's messenger of hope and comfort to the people who were in despair and bondage. So as Christians, we are to help each other as brothers and sisters. And that's given that we understand that uh, we often feel alone when we're suffering. You know, we, we lose sight, we lose perspective of the big picture that there's everyone's suffering at some stage. But we think we're all alone. Well, we just need someone to talk to sometimes. Need someone to empathize. But God can do one thing that we can't do. He can deliver, which is awesome. eh? In his good time, when the time is right, when the suffering has done its work in us, then God will deliver us. All right, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now remember Moses 40 years ago? I'm the deliverer. I'm going to deliver the Jews or the Hebrew people. He couldn't even bury one Egyptian. But now God is telling me, you're going to bury the entire army. So his impulsiveness, his pride has gone. 40 years of dryness and boredom and humility has replaced impulsiveness in the life of Moses. So who am I, asked Moses. 40 years early, he would have said, yep, I'm ready. I'm your guy. (laughs) But no longer. The self-confidence is gone. And in its place is a brokenness, a depth, a richness. And it's interesting that the most qualified men and women are often those who are the most reluctant to take the challenge to respond to the call because they're so aware of their unworthiness and frailty. And that's where God wants us to be. Broken, frail, so he can get the glory. So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So this mountain is Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. What makes a difference? I will certainly be with you. It's not us that has to be a great speaker or some kind of fantastic person or has some skills. Moses says, who am I to go to Pharaoh and then I should bring the children of Israel? I'm not qualified. I'm not strong enough. I can't do this. And God's answer was, I will certainly be with you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And nothing is impossible for those or for us if we if we have God with us okay verse 13 then Moses said to God indeed when I come to the children of Israel and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they say to me what is his name what shall I say to them 
And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So the word God is like a title. It's like Mr. President or Your Highness. It's a respectful way of referring to our Creator. But Moses wanted to know his character. And so God revealed his character to Moses. And it's quite a big topic. I don't think we're going to get into it today. So I'm going to leave that for another sermon. So that'll be next week when we talk about the I am and what it means and how it's used throughout the Bible. It's an awesome study. All right, let's go to verse 15. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Surely I have visited you, God says. I'm aware of what you're going through. The cracking of whips on your back, the unreasonable demands placed upon your shoulders. I have surely visited you. So visiting people is a good thing to do. We can go around and we can encourage. Okay, There's encouragement in that. But on a more practical level, Jesus came to visit us when he came to the earth 2,000 years ago. There's no reason for us to feel uncared for, untended, disenfranchised, forgotten. For God is the great visitor. He sees, he comes, and he'll come alongside. And he can use us like he used Moses to do that with other people. Uh, Verse 17, And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hiphites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice. So basically, God is promising that when you communicate this message, that I know their situation, and I've come to set them free, they will listen to you. So God is giving Moses some confidence here. Verse 18, And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Do you think it's all God wanted was just a three-day journey into the wilderness? No. But that was a test. It was a test for Pharaoh. Okay, So God wanted more than just three days out. It's not just three days, by the way. He went three days to get out of the land of Egypt. It would take three days for them walking to travel out of the land of Egypt. Then they could have their worship service, and then they could come back. That's what they were asking. But God is just giving a test to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to fail this test big time it's going to keep saying no in verse 19 we read but I am sure that the king of Egypt would not let you go no not even by a mighty hand so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst and after that he will let you go and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. That first Pharaoh will say no, but when you finally leave, you'll leave enriched, God promised. 
Just a bit of a, um, a typology lesson here. Who do you think Pharaoh represents? Satan, yeah. Who do you think Moses represents? Jesus. He's a deliverer. And the Passover, which we haven't got to yet, um, the, the sacrifice represents the sacrifice Jesus made. And the people of Egypt, or the land of Egypt, represents the world, yeah, the world system, and with all its enticements. And the people of Israel represent all the people. So basically we're all born into slavery. We're all born into bondage. If you study the word Egypt as a subject throughout the scripture, you'll see that it's a picture of bondage. Egypt in this Bible is called the house of bondage. So the world, for us, is a house of bondage. We're all born into this house of bondage. We're in bondage to the things of the world because we've got a sinful nature. So God has visited us through Christ and he's given us the opportunity to be delivered. And through the sacrifice of his son, God's wrath has passed over us and we get to leave this Egypt. We get to get out of this world system. And also, we receive gifts. So what, what happens when we become Christian? God gives us spiritual gifts. Okay, It's a really neat little typology there. And that was just a really brief explanation, but you can look into that more now. Let's go back to verse 2, just to finish on this. The burning bush experience. So apart from Jesus, without a doubt, the greatest leader in world history would have to be Moses, yeah. <laughs> Leading three million people across the desert for 40 years. <laughs> and from, from Egypt to the borders of the Promised Land. And he did it really, really well. Just a couple of little hiccups there, but he did it. He was an awesome leader. The meekest or humblest man in the entire earth, apart from Jesus. When he died at the age of 120, Scripture tells us his sight wasn't dimmed, his strength wasn't diminished. And that you find that in Deuteronomy 34, verse 7. Moses... He can split his life into three 40-year periods. In the first 40 years, Moses became somebody. He was adopted by Ramses too. The second, he was educated by the best scholars of Egypt. He was a military hero, and he was in line to become the next pharaoh of the Egyptian empire. That's what they believe about him. The next 40 years, however, Moses was a nobody. So he spent 40 years becoming a somebody, and then he spent another 40 years becoming a nobody. <laughs> So after, at the age of 40, after killing an Egyptian taskmaster, he fled for his life to the desert. And now, so he was a, a somebody, now, then he was a nobody, and now he is going to be a model for everybody. So Moses is going to be a model that we can follow, that we can look at. Moses was a broken man. There was nothing about him that was special. It wasn't his training in the world. Moses realized that was nothing. It wasn't going to help like he thought before. And he realizes that he's weak and he can't do it. And I mentioned that before that, you know, God didn't use a, a big tree. And I think this is a picture to Moses that God uses simple things. God uses the weak. God uses the, the foolish to confound the wise. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Because we can look at Moses and say, oh, Moses is a great leader, you know. He must have been a great guy. No, he just had a great God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. And this gives us all hope because God wants the glory 
and for him to get the glory, he has to use something that would seem impossible. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So, God chooses to work with those who are bushes, thorn bushes. Those who are in the bush league. (laughs) And when God uses us, all the glory goes to him. So here's a little story to help you understand this. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. He's a violinist. It's P-A-G-A-N-I-N-I. Paganini. Okay, there we go. So, he was a great violinist, and he did something amazing. And in a Viennese concert one evening, concert hall one evening, he walked onto the stage, violin in hand, and broke a string. He followed this by breaking a second string, and then a third. With only one string remaining, Paganini nestled the violin under his chin, and for the next 18 minutes, played magnificently. One string. As the crowd rose to its feet in ovation, Paganini said, One string and Paganini. And realizing they had heard a true master, the crowd erupted in applause. So, that picture there is Paganini is like God, and we're like the violin. So we might be all broken, but God can still make a beautiful melody out of us, even if we only get one string left. Okay. We might feel strung out. No. <laughs> Not the fourth string, <laughs> whatever. But God uses to love that which is weak or unimportant to do his will. Now, why does God reserve all the glory for himself? Well, if we get the glory, what happens to us? We get proud. And if I want people to look at me, eventually I'll let them down. So I don't want people to look at me. I want people to look at God. So if I fall, uh, if I sin, then... You might see me and I might yell at my daughter or something. And you go, oh, I thought he was a good dad. Well, don't put your eyes on me. Put your eyes on God. The Lord is with me. Here's Moses on the backside of the desert day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year. Decades go by. 40 years. And then something happens. This burning bush which is not being consumed. So we might ask, where is God tonight, or where is God today? He's in the bush, sitting next to you. That prickly person, you ask? Yes. God is here in the person sitting next to you, in the person you're married to, in the person you work with. Wait a minute, you protest. The Lord certainly can't speak through my husband, my parents, my boss. They're not on fire. But that's what we need to see. The bush was not on fire. The fire was in the middle of the bush, the midst of the bush. You might think people around you aren't on fire. That may be true. But if they're believers, the fire is in them. And here's some examples of where people, obviously the fire was in the inside and not on the outside. Okay. Although Jesus did mighty works in Capernaum, there were those who scoffed and said, We know him, he is the son of the carpenter. Aren't his brothers and sisters among us? They thought he was the son of a carpenter, failing to realize he was the son of the creator. See, they're looking for this fire on the outside, but the fire was on the inside. He had the Holy Spirit, completely filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, completely empowered. He's perfect, but they didn't recognize him. They didn't bother 
to take to listen to his message. Mark 6, the disciples are toiling, the waves are mounting, the wind is howling. In the middle of the night, they see someone walking toward them. A legend of the day said that right before fishermen drowned, they saw a spirit coming toward them. So that just adds something to that story, doesn't it? They're about to drown, but it's not a spirit, it's not a ghost, it's Jesus. And Jesus says, be of good cheer, it is I. What about this one? The two disciples walking down the road towards Emmaus, and they were joined by the one, capital O, who asked them why they were so sad. Are you a stranger here, they asked, not recognizing that it was Jesus himself who walked beside them. So we can easily miss hearing from the Lord. Here's another one. Finding the tomb empty that Easter morning, Mary Magdalene wept. Seeing a man she supposed to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have moved the body, tell me where you have taken him. But when the gardener answered and spoke her name, she recognized him for who he was. John chapter 20. So God speaks to us through those around us, through strangers, through gardeners, through plumbers. They might not be on fire, but the fire is in them, and the Lord can still use them, just like he can use each one of us. And I mentioned before that we don't spend enough time stopped. We go, 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 all the time. That's our Western lifestyle, isn't it? You know, you wake up in the morning and you've got things to do. We need to make time for God. God didn't actually call Moses' name until Moses stopped and looked. The God wasn't actually going to say, Hey, Moses, 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 please stop, please stop. No, God waited for Moses to, to stop and look and take notice, and then God spoke to him. If we're not willing to stop and look, then we're going to miss out on a lot of things that God would want us to, to know and God would want to share with us. So we need to take that time to spend with God and to have that quiet time, to have that intimate time of prayer. And when we have quiet times, don't just read your Bible. Actually, spend time reading your Bible, but also spend time listening. Turn aside to see the bush and see what God would want to say to you. Father, I just thank you for um, Moses. I thank you for the story of using common people to do extraordinary things. And Lord, the fact that you put us through trials to make us, or really not to make us, but to break us. You make us more like your son, but to become like Jesus, we need to be broken. We need to be made usable like that horse. It's no good until it's broken in and uh, can't be trusted. It's wild to do whatever it wants to do. But Lord, we need to be broken. We need to be humbled. We need to be uh, contrite. We need to be usable. And I pray that you will just help us to be that person, that man, that woman that is usable, Lord, as we go through the sufferings and trials in this life, whatever they may be, help us just to uh, understand that you're using those trials to make us into someone who's usable, make us into someone who can do what you're asking them to do, so you get the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.